church. I never thought the day would come when I would be able to, to preach back here. Not that Sam dislikes me or distrusts my preaching. Of course, I'll leave that to you to judge as well. But just having uh, my wife and I, Laura Beth, my better half, she's not here today. All the kids decided to get sick. But uh, we were here from 2018 to 2020. And uh, then God called us up for some more schooling in Louisville, Kentucky. So we went up there for two years. Then we moved to Ohio, where I'm from, and I was teaching up there. I was an assistant pastor. We were there for almost two years as well. And then God called us back to Pensacola Christian, of course, down in Florida. And Sam, not feeling well either, just asked if I would come and do pulpit supply, and I said, absolutely. So truly, this is my church family. Laura Beth and I, so many times when we were up in Louisville, we were just thinking about everyone here. And how much we missed you all and loved you. Of course, Brian and Debbie got to come up and visit us a couple of times, so it was great to see them. And Sam and I and Michael as well, we stayed in contact via text and phone calls. But truly, I am so grateful to be here at Cloverleaf Baptist with you all as we get to study and learn and, Lord willing, love God more through the sermon this morning. Again, I've already kind of introduced my wife, Laura Beth. We have three kids, Charlotte. Elizabeth and Bennett, they're two, one, and a newborn. So it's always busy at the Grover house, running, chasing kids, changing diapers. Anyways, God has been very gracious and good to us. So again, it's good to be here. Well, turning your Bibles with me to the book of Jude, the book of Jude. It's going to be the last book. It's only one chapter long. It's the last book right before Revelation. So if you're near the end of your Bible, you're pretty close. But we'll be looking at Jude, and I will put into our hearing today, I'll read into our hearing verses 17 through 23. Verses 17 through 23. And Jude writes, beginning in verse 17, addressing the church, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own godly lusts, these be they who separate themselves. That means they cause division. They are sensual, having not the spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. This morning, as God's people, I want us to focus on this idea of the seven, seven habits of highly effective churches. The seven habits of highly effective churches. But pray with me before we hop into the meat of the sermon. Heavenly Father, if the Holy Spirit does not work today, this sermon will be in vain. We will have met in vain. And so I, I ask that the Holy Spirit will convict, will move, will sanctify us here today. I pray, Heavenly Father, that those here this morning, they have not placed a saving faith in you, that you will bring them to yourself. I pray, Heavenly Father, for your people here today, those of us who are doubting, those of us who are sad, those of us facing forms of depression, anxiety, those of us who perhaps things seem to be going very well, very happy, very joyful, wherever we're at today, Heavenly Father, we need you. 
None of us are exempt from needing more of you. So reveal more of yourself to us. And Heavenly Father, most importantly, may we love Christ more. May we desire Christ more through the preaching of your word. It's in his name we pray this. Amen. Let's focus just for a couple of minutes on the idea of habits. On the idea of habits. Boy, some habits can be very annoying. Uh, Some habits can be very good. I remember growing up, my mom and dad had to drill bad habits out of me. I still have some, I'm sure. But some of them, you know, don't pick your nose. Get your elbows off the table while we're eating. Don't burp while we're eating. Uh, You know, don't punch your brother, etc. Habits that uh, we form throughout life. And of course, I, I, what I mean by habits are those, those uh, activities, those things we do that are almost second nature. We don't even think about it. Uh, Laura Beth will sometimes say, Josh, you have the habit of when you're really deep in thought, you just kind of have this blank stare. And, you know, she's kind of like, uh, yoo-hoo, uh, is everything okay? So uh, some of us have habits. Now, a lot of those habits are, they're not bad, they're not wrong. They're, they're just kind of innocent habits. But there are also those kind of habits that we have when, you know, something bad happens to us, we can form habits of I'm going to respond angrily or negatively to that situation. Or perhaps I will respond to that situation immediately going in prayer. Uh, we form habits all the time. Again, some of them are sort of innocent, but some of them can truly direct the path of our lives. Now, what I've been talking about have been individual habits, things we do ourselves. But groups form habits. People together have certain habits. We call that a culture. Here in America, very generally speaking, our culture has formed certain habits. For example, let's just think of driving down the road. When I get on the road, I don't even have to think whether I should be in the left lane or the right lane. We drive in the right lane. That's just what we do. Uh, If the light is turning yellow, not going to lie, I do speed up. But uh, we know the red light's coming. So when the the light turns red, you stop. We don't even think about those things. It's just what we do in America. And there's so many other habits that we as a culture have formed. But I'm not here to talk today about the habits of America. We're here to talk today about the habits of the church. What habits, what culture is Cloverleaf Baptist forming together? What kind of habits are we introducing What habits are we supporting? What habits are we against that are occurring in the church? Jude is facing the exact same issue in the early church. This book was written probably around A.D. 60. So the church is relatively new, about 30 years old or so since the ascension of Christ in A.D. 30 or 33. And Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, but he's also a leading figure in the early church. And as Jude is looking at the the problems the early church faces, he's going to address them head on. And he's going to say, if you want to be effective for Christ, if you want to do what Christ has commissioned the church to do, then here are going to be certain things that you have to keep in mind. And it's seven of those that we're going to go over this morning. And those seven habits are not only applicable to the early church, but to us today. So let's look at verse 17. Let's go over 
these, uh, these seven habits. Verse 17, Jude says this, but beloved, so he's talking to the church, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what the apostles said. They told you there should be mockers in the last time. And here's what these mockers do, these false teachers do. They walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. Cloverleaf, if we're going to be effective, if we're going to have effective habits, first of all, we must heed and we must be aware of warnings of false teachers and false converts in the, ter- in the church. That's what we see in verses 17 through 19. Let's go back to verse 17. Jude says, the apostles have warned all of us. You are going to have false teachers who will try to mislead you. So don't be surprised when it happens. Be aware that it can and will happen. Well, where do we see the apostles saying this? I want to give just two of of the apostles' writings about false teachers. The first one comes from Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1. Here's what the apostle Paul writes. Now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That's Paul's warning. Then we go to the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 2.1. Peter writes, but there were false prophets, false teachers also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily, that means secretly, they secretly shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. We cannot be naive about the fact that people can come into this church and try to mislead us with false doctrine. Sometimes, you know, we kind of joke, and like, you know, Joel Osteen, you know, in Houston, wow, what a bad guy, or, you know, T.D. Jakes, oh my goodness, you know. The, my point is, is even we here can have people who enter these doors and try to mislead us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not exempt to that. It doesn't matter the size of the church. It doesn't matter the location of the church. False teachers can enter. Now, some might say, well, what do these false teachers do? What do they look like? What are their uh, actions? What is their behavior? That's what Jude goes into in verse 18. First of all, he says at the latter half of verse 18, these false teachers walk after their own ungodly lusts. What Jude has noticed both in the Old Testament with the people of Israel and now in the New, is people will seek to take advantage of God's people. Think about it with churches. It's a beautiful building. That means there's money involved. So there's going to be money in churches. People are involved. Obviously, we're all here. And so there can be forms of power grabs and power lust. And you can have men and women who say, I I'm going to live my life for money and power, and guess where they can find it? In the church. And Jude has noticed that. These are going to be men and women who will come very, perhaps, charismatic, very attractive to people, 
uh, people you would be willing to trust and follow after. But all along, they are using the church for their own sexual desires. Think of all the situations, uh, even in the past year, the, the Southern Baptist Convention did a study. Over 700 churches and in a short amount of time had child abuse going on, not from you know, people in the pews, though of course that would be tragic, not necessarily even from deacons, but from their pastors taking advantage of those they are to shepherd. People can use the church for their own uh, power grabs and even sexual promiscuity. And we're going to go back a couple of verses in Jude. Let's catch up on the context and why this is so important. Jude spends most of his letter absolutely railing against these false teachers, and he doesn't hold back any punches. He makes very clear the, the destruction that will come to all false teachers who attack the church of Christ. But for sake of time, let's just do a, a few verses. Let's go to verse, verse 4. Let's go to verse 4 in Jude, and we're going to uh, kind of talk a little bit more about these false teachers. Verse 4, this is what Jude says. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Again, that, that means men who come in secretly. They're not going to tell everyone, hey, everyone at the church, um, I'm here for power grabs and to fulfill my sexual desires. They're not going to do that. They're going to creep in unawares, who before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Again, that means whatever uh, uh, appetite they have for the flesh, they give into. And they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Now from verses 5 to 7, he's going to give three examples from the Old Testament of how people have crept in uh, to mislead God's people. Starting in verse 5, here's the first one. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So there's our first example, unbelieving Israelites. Verse 6, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Verse 6 this is a very interesting verse. We don't have time to get into it. But based on First and Second Peter and Genesis 6, this probably refers to angels who cohabitated with women. Verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah is known for uh, men and their homosexuality. So these false teachers go after their own ungodly lusts. They're like the unbelieving Israelites, they're like the sexually perverted angels, and they're like the sexually perverted persons. But all of them desire to mislead God's people. And Jude makes very clear that they will be condemned. So first of all, these false teachers, they will go after their own ungodly lusts, and they will use the church to do so. Second, as we see in verse 19, these false teachers will cause divisions. The King James puts it, these be they who separate themselves. So these people, these false teachers, they come in and they say, I want a following. 
And so they'll come up with some new doctrine or something or other to get people to follow them. And they're using the church as pawns in their game. So I come and I'm, you know, I'm going to be a charming individual and I want people to follow me. And my whole goal is not to unify and build up the church, it's to have people follow me. That's the ultimate goal. These false teachers do not care about the unity of the church. They don't care about making sure you are built up in Christ. You are only here to follow after me. That's, that's the mindset of a false teacher. And then third, verse 19 again, these people are sensual. That means they are worldly minded. They are naturally minded. What that means is there's no spiritual concern. They could care less ultimately about people growing in Christ. They could care less if you're overcoming sin in your life. Now, they wouldn't tell you that, of course. I mean, false teachers know how to play the game. They know the lingo. They know the vocabulary. But ultimately, their goal is, I don't want you to grow in Jesus. I want you to come and follow me. Again, they're using us more as a power grab. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Here's what he says. But the natural man... The, again, the word Jude uses is sensual, same word. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He could care less what the Holy Spirit is convicting him of. He could care less about what God's word has to say about growing in Christ. Why does this natural man not care about the things of the Spirit of God? Because they're foolishness to him. Christianity is stupid. And those who follow Christianity lack sense. That's ultimately what he's thinking in his mind. And neither can this man, this false teacher, know the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. That goes into the fourth characteristic we see at the end of verse 19. These men don't have the spirit. These men and women have not the spirit of God. This is why if we start to preach something other than from God's word, a huge red flag. It's, it's saying what the Spirit is leading us toward, which the Spirit gave us the Bible. He is the one who inspired the apostles and the prophets to write God's Word. If we begin to preach another gospel, huge red flag. If we have people coming into Cloverleaf and you can tell over time they're really only here to gain a following, that's a huge red flag. Now, here's not what Jude is saying. There can be, I believe, Christians who come in, young Christians, Christians who may not know God's word very well, and, and they say something to you, and you're like, that is not correct. We're not calling them a false teacher. They're perhaps wrong in their thinking, but we're here to build them up. None of us uh, are omniscient. We're not all-knowing of the Bible. What we're talking about, what Jude is talking about, is men and women who clearly understand God's word and do the exact opposite. And they're willing to bring you along in their pursuit of their own doctrine and their own teaching. That's the kind of individuals we're talking about. So, so next time someone says something, you're like, I think you're wrong. You know, don't beat them over the head with your Bible and call them a, a false teacher. What we're talking about is clearly people who walk against the things of God and could care less. But again, they're going to be very mischievous. They're going to be very secretive, at least initially, on what they're doing. 
So if we're going to be an effective church for the kingdom of Christ, for the glory of Christ, first of all, we have to remember the warnings and heed those warnings about false teachers. Second, if we're going to be effective, we must build ourselves up in the faith. Look at verse 20 with me. Jude says, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. This term build means to edify or edification. Here's what Paul has to say about being built up, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. What does it mean to be built up in the faith? Here's what Paul says. As ye, the church, have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up, that word built up is edified, rooted and edified, built up in Christ, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So what Jude is saying, to be built up in the faith, is to be built up in Jesus Christ. To be built up in the Christian faith is to be built up in your knowledge and love of Christ. So if we're going to edify each other, if we're going to build each other up, then we must continually and consistently, constantly point each other back to Jesus. Point each other back to the word. All of us need help in living this life. All of us. Every single one of us. And when we are helping each other with the situations of life, what is the source of our advice? Is it our own opinion, ultimately? Uh, This worked well for me. Is it only pragmatic? Or is it rooted and built in Jesus Christ and the word? And if we're going to build each other up in any facet of life, that's where our advice must come from. Back to Christ. Go back to Christ. Go back to the word. But also notice how Jude is comparing and contrasting false teachers with the true church. False teachers are willing to divide as long as they get the following and the people they want in the end. But in verse 20, we are to build up. It's impossible to build up and divide at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. So while the true church is to build each other up in the faith, in Christ, in unity, false teachers want to divide the church. They want to disseminate the church. If we're going to be effective, we must be unified in Christ. We must, must be unified in Christ. And how is that? By following the doctrine of the word. So if we're going to be effective, first of all, we have to heed these warnings about false teachers. Second, we have to be built up in the faith, built up in Christ and in the word. And then third, as we see in the latter end of verse 20, we must pray in the Holy Ghost. We must pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Again, I'm going to go back to Paul. I think he elaborates on this. Ephesians 6, 17 through 18. Ephesians 6 is the the armor of the Christian. Here's what Paul has to say about the Spirit. And take the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, here's the tool of the Spirit in your life, the Word of God. 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ah, so notice, the Spirit is the sword, which is the Word of God. And here's what he says right after. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The Spirit uses the Word. He works through the Word. He works through the preaching of the Word. And then he says, pray in the Spirit. So how am, I, how am I praying in the Spirit? I am praying Scripture. I am praying according to the doctrine of Scripture. Sometimes I'll be talking with someone, and they'll say, I prayed for this and this, and I know God's going to answer it. And the thing they're praying for is in the exact opposite of what God's Word preaches or teaches. Now, I am not getting down on their motive. Some people have a very good heart and a very good spirit behind their prayers. But there must be that time where you're saying, listen, the Holy Spirit won't answer a prayer that directly contradicts him. He will not work through that. So when we are praying, this, when we are praying scripture, when we are praying doctrine, we are praying in the spirit. Prayer in and of itself is not valuable unless it's based on scripture. So we must pray in the Holy Ghost. We must pray in the Spirit. Again, notice the parallel. End of verse 19. The false teachers don't have the Spirit. They could care less about the Holy Spirit. They could care less about sanctification, redemption, and one-day glorification. Their hearts and minds are only on the here and now and how they can serve themselves. But the true church is praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Hopefully the microphone is keeping us all awake. At least every time I do the, the P sound, I'm like, oh. Okay, so anyways, we're praying in, the Holy, praying in the Holy Ghost. Sorry about that, everyone. Okay. So we're praying in the Holy Ghost. These false teachers could care less about it. So again, thirdly, if we're going to be effective, we must pray in the Holy Spirit. We must pray the Word. And then fourth, we see that we must keep ourselves in God's love. Keep ourselves in God's love. Verse 21, that's exactly what it says. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Christianity is clearly based on God's character. Christianity is not separate from God's character. Christianity is rooted in God's character. And God is love. Now, we have to add, though, the scripture caveat. Love doesn't mean I will excuse whatever you do in your life. Love does not mean I will affirm whatever you do in your life. Notice this. Jude has made it very clear. You can do wrong things, and God will punish you for those. Uh, false teachers is proof in point. God's love is always based on his holy and righteous character, and he will never go against his character. Therefore, our love for each other and our love for God must also reflect the holy and righteous character of that God. But nonetheless, there should be love in our midst. There should be relationships happening. If you're like me, sometimes it's easy to come into a church and say, oh, I love my church people. I love them. How many of them do you know? I think Tim helps out at the door. I can't remember. Um, Lynn, 
makes great sweet tea. Don't really know, though, much about them. So we can toss around this word love, and what does it mean? I don't know. How can we love each other if we don't know each other? How can we pray for each other if we don't know each other? How can I pray specifically for Brian if I don't know what Brian's going through? How can I love you if I see you at the end of the pew and I'm like, you're there again, I'm here again, let's sing, you know, go back and eat wherever we eat around here. But I'm not going to reach out to you. I'm not going to shake your hand and at least say it's great to see you. If we're really going to love each other, then we have to know each other. We have to relate to each other. We have to build each other up. And again, that means relationship. But clearly, love is to characterize each and every Christian. It is to characterize each and every Christian. In addition, Jesus says this about the identifying mark of true disciples of him. He says, it's by your love for each other, the world will know that you're my disciples. That's the identifying mark. I think of it this way. When I went to New York City, we were uh, going down Broadway, the taxi driver was, and if you've been to NYC, and you don't even have to go to NYC, you, you can picture how busy of a place this is. I mean, there's lights everywhere. People aren't crossing the street when they shouldn't be and all this, you know, and everything's going on. Everyone's honking their horn. It's so busy. And we were trying to find, uh, you know, a restaurant to eat at. We had a specific restaurant. And as we're coming around the corner in the hustle and bustle of New York City, we see this huge light. It's like blinking, and it's got an arrow pointed at the at the restaurant, so we know where it's at. And in a similar way, people in the world are trying to find love. They're trying to find true love in this chaotic world, in this place where people say, you can find love here, you can find love there. Uh, the list goes on. And the church is to be that blinking signal God's love is here. It's here amongst his people. And we are to be that to the world. We are to love each other for our own benefit and for God's glory, but also for the benefit of the world. To know, wow, this is where I can truly find God's love revealed. And where I can be built up in the true Christian faith. We have to keep ourselves in God's love. So if we're going to be effective, again, first, we have to heed these warnings of false teachers. Second, we have to build ourselves up in the faith, in Christ. Third, we pray in the Holy Spirit. We pray according to the word. Fourth, we keep ourselves in God's love. And then fifth, verse 21, we look for the merciful return. End of verse 21 says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That, that statement means the second return of Christ. You know, what we look for in the future drives what we do now. I mean, think about it. If, if, there's a lot of young people here, praise be to God. You know, if you're in high school or in college and your teacher came to you and said, listen, I don't care what you get on this next test. You're not passing it. That is something that would happen in the future. You're going to take a test in the future. 
how would that drive my actions now for preparing for the test? If you're like me, then I'd say, well, why even prepare for it? Why get ready? It doesn't matter. What we think will happen in the future will drive our present. Uh, let's put it this way. For, for us guys, if you knew the girl you were in love with would never marry you, never happen, would you keep wanting to date her? Well, I shouldn't say that, because then that puts us in a really uh, sticky situation. But we probably wouldn't. Why? Because it's not going to lead to marriage, the goal. So what we want in the future, our hope for the future, drives what we do in the present. And on a positive note, we are looking to the future of Christ coming back for us. Paul puts it this way. If Jesus hasn't resurrected, if he is not alive and coming back for his people, then our faith, our preaching is in vain. Cloverleaf, we're not here just to get five points of how to live a better life and look like Andy Griffith to our neighbors. That's not why we're here. Our point here is not to have little moral lessons that sound really good. Our point here is to prepare us to be with Christ forever. It is to help us relate to Christ and his people the way we are supposed to. It's all about the return of Christ. It's all about yearning for Christ to come for us. And this, this idea of looking forward to the return of Christ will inspire us, man, I have to continue to seek after him. I cannot give myself to the things of this world. For example, when I was growing up, my dad would sit down and say, Josh, listen, when, when you get older, you are going to struggle with some thoughts in your life that are, are, are they're going to be natural for a guy, but they're going to be very hard to deal with. And he said, what you have to keep in mind is looking forward to the day of marrying your wife and looking at her and saying with, as, with the innocence and, and integrity of saying, I have only given myself to you. And it's, it's in this way, I like to think of looking forward to Christ. It's not... It's not the second coming of Christ is just, oh, I can't wait for Jesus to come back and that'll be great. It's actually, no, I yearn, my affections yearn to see God. And because I will see him, I want to live a life that loves and pleases him. I want to live a life where I can look Christ one day in the eyes and say, I truly love you. I truly have yearned to see you. The Holy Spirit within me while I'm here on this earth is drawing my affections to you. And we, the church, have to have that same longing. We can't just go around and say, you're impure because you're, I don't know, your skirt is too short. Or you're impure because you use the wrong translation that's missing the whole point of pursuing purity, spiritual purity. The whole point of pursuing spiritual purity, and again, let's go back to Paul, is one day we will be presented to God as a spotless bride. That's a relationship. That's a marriage relationship. 
It's not just purity in and of itself. It's a yearning for Christ. It's the affections being drawn to him. If we're going to be effective, we must look forward to Christ's return and our eternal life with him. So again, we see fifth, the point we just went over, we have to look for God's merciful return. Let's look at verse 22 for our sixth point, and that is we must have compassion on doubting Christians. If we're going to be effective, we must have the habit of being compassionate toward doubting Christians. Jude puts it this way, and if some have compassion making a difference. Sometimes when you hear that word making a difference, you're like, I want to have compassion on someone who's lost so they will come to know Christ. I will make a difference in their life. I understand that. But really the underlying meaning is making a difference in the, in the life of a doubting Christian. That's, that's really the point you're getting to. When I was teaching up in Ohio, some of my students would ask questions where you kind of want to, you know, slap your forehead and be like, what? You know, what are you even thinking? I know I've done that plenty of times in my own life, asking those kind of questions. If our reaction to doubting Christians is, you need to have more faith, um, what that even means, again, we've went over, point them back to Jesus. Uh, that's how you build people up in the faith. But if people come and, and they say, I don't understand certain books of the Bible, I don't understand these concepts, our reaction shouldn't be, well, I don't care. Um, I'm too busy. I've got other things to do. Our reaction should be one of compassion. One of I care and love you. Again, going back to verse 21, keeping ourselves in God's love. I love you, so I'm going to invest part of my precious time. And for us, that time is precious, but I'm going to invest that time into you for God's glory. You know, Paul told Timothy, Timothy as a young pastor, he said, you have to be patient if you're going, if you're going to be a successful pastor in God's eyes. If you're going to be a Christian who, who God can really use. Uh, think of 2 Timothy 2.24 with me. Here's what, here's what Paul says. The servant of the Lord must not strive. That means he's not looking to argue with everyone under the sun about anything. He must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach. And here's the word, he must be patient. We have to be patient with each other. We have to be. If we think everyone coming through these doors is going to look like us and sound like us and sing like us, and they'll know everything that we know, we're fooling ourselves. It's just not reality. We're all here at different levels of knowledge of Scripture. And, and we have to make room to help disciple and build each other up in the knowledge of God's word. But the reaction is always wrong if the reaction is this, get out of my face, that's a stupid question, and you should know better. That's, that is never the attitude of an effective church, of an effective Christian. Rather, it's one of, I understand where you're at, let me help you know more of Christ. It's an attitude of love and selflessness rather than of selfishness. So again, we, we need to have compassion on these doubting Christians. And then last, 
verse 23, we must evangelize the lost. Jude puts it this way, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. What Jude is saying here is we don't use scare tactics to bring people to Jesus, okay? So uh, chick tracks, don't know how you think about those. Got to be careful with those. Um, some very interesting cartoons. We're not running around saying, you will burn, you will burn, repent. And, and though that is true, the problem is, is we're using Jesus as an insurance man from fire. There's, there's no relationship there. Uh, there's no saying, no, eternal life is not because you won't spend forever in hell. It's because you will be with Christ forever. That's, that's a huge difference. So we're not running around scaring people um, just for the sake of, of scaring them. Rather, what Jude is, is getting to is when we're evangelizing the lost, the lost will have lifestyles that are anti-Christian. By definition, the lost will be people who will not have proper affections for Christ. They are not under the lordship of Christ. And so when you're witnessing to them, you have to do so with fear. You have to do so saying, I cannot get caught up in the lifestyle of the person I'm trying to witness to. You know, some people can say, well, in order to witness, I'm going to start, and I've actually had someone say this to me, I'm going to start going clubbing with my friends. Okay, time out, gang. Um, let's go to Jude 23. That's not a good idea, okay? That is not a good idea. Because at the end of verse 23, here's what Jude says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. That means the deluding and pervasive power of sin. So as we're witnessing to people, we have to understand we're going to relate to them as we should. We should have a relationship with people we're witnessing to. We want to love them. We want to care for them. But we never have an excuse to start sinning to bring them to Christ. We never have an excuse to start sinning to bring them to Christ. That's what we're talking about in verse 23. A way to think about it is, I am deadly allergic to poison ivy. I shouldn't say deadly, but very allergic to poison ivy. But at the same time, I like to hike. So you can see a problem there. I want to finish the hike. I'm planning to finish the hike. But I also, even in very hot weather, which we get down here in the south in the summertime, uh, I, I will still wear pants. So I'm not getting this poison ivy all over me. But I want to finish the goal. I want to get to the hike or finish the hike. It's the same point in a way when we're witnessing. I, I want to love and care for you, but at the same time, I've got to be very careful of how this person will start to influence my life in the wrong way. So again, if we're going to be effective, here, here are seven, seven ways that Jude gives. Again, remember, first, be careful of false teachers. Be careful of false teachers. Second, build yourselves up in the faith. We build each other up in the faith in Christ. Third, we're praying in the Holy Spirit. Fourth, we're keeping ourselves in God's love. We're loving each other. 
fits, we're looking for Christ to come back and get us all. And then six, we have compassion on downing Christians. And seventh, we evangelize the lost. But why do we do this all? Look at verse 24 with me. Now unto him, that is Jesus Christ, that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Cloverleaf, we will be effective when we preach Christ crucified. We will be effective when we look to Christ for his glory and a love for him. And we will be effective because Jesus always wins.